So if, if you had to just list out a top five list of if a person claims to be a Christian, then this should be a part of their life. This is the fruit that absolutely should be there. It should be evident. It should be seen. What would be on that list? Love. Okay. Anyone else? What? Apples. Okay. Joy. Okay. Love, joy. Conviction. Okay. Conviction. Conviction to what? To the word. Forgiveness. Patience. Okay. So we see, I mean, it, it's, you know, once this train kind of gets rolling, it gets easy, right? We're like, oh, yeah, I got one, you know. But at the end of the day, yeah, love, obedience, I think conviction fits into that. That, that at the end of the day, a Christian should be someone that can be counted on to do the right thing. To do right by God and by others. Kind of sounds familiar, right? Love God, love your neighbor. Loving God is an inward orientation, and loving neighbor is the outward expression of that inward orientation, and that we should. I, absolutely, Christians should be those that can be counted on to ultimately do the right thing. We're not going to get it right every time, but even when we get it wrong, what, what should happen? Even in getting it wrong, we should eventually get it right. Because we'll make it right. Because it's called repentance. Because we will look at it and say, oops, I messed up. I got to own that. And we will make it right after that. We will try our best to at least, you know, turn it back the right direction. Not that we can undo a wrong, but we'll at least repent and try to get it right the next time. And this is such an important part of the Christian faith that I, I fear it's getting lost in today's noise within the church. We're all so worried about our own happiness and our own peace and our own well-being and, and our own spirituality that we were kind of forgetting the nuts and bolts of, you know what, if you know God, you're going to do the right thing in life. <clears throat> Obedience matters. And John just takes a section of Scripture here in 1 John 3, 4 through 10 to really hammer this truth home. And when I say hammer, I mean he's bringing a sledgehammer to this thing right here. And the reason is because the false teachers that he is combating in the church that he's writing to, they weren't being consistent. Not only were they teaching bad doctrine and leading people away from Christ, but they were also had a lifestyle that just didn't line up with faith. And in this sense... John is kind of telling them that should have been red flag number one. <laughs> that should have been warning number one is look at their life and you see that it doesn't line up with Christian belief and action. You see, we have to get back to a point where genuine obedience to God has to be at the top of the list of what we want out of life. You know, this is 4th of July weekend, and, and I am grateful to have been born in America. I am. This, I, I believe the greatest country that the world has ever seen. And why is that? Because it was based on Christian principle. 
because it was a place where people could freely study the Word of God and, and, and build on the Word of God however they wanted, and God blessed that in many ways. But the instant we stop obeying God, what also stops? The blessings of God. And we are seeing that in our country right now as churches are turning more and more inward, as churches are becoming more and more about this kind of deistic, therapeutic narcissism. It's really what I want to call it, that we acknowledge God exists. And so long as you acknowledge God exists, he's cool with your life being all about you and you being happy. That is not the story of the gospel. That is definitely not why Jesus died on the cross. And so we have to be willing to put the will of God before our own will. We have to be willing to put the desires of God before our own desires. And it's not like Jesus is asking us to do something he didn't do. Jesus prayed that powerful prayer in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And so look with me today in 1 John 3, 4 through 10. And listen to what John has to say about obedience. Verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John leaves no room here. He's talking about sin and righteousness, obedience, and disobedience. And he doesn't want any confusion here. And so I want us to start by looking at the first thing he says, and that is that sin is lawlessness. What does lawlessness mean? Is that just, you know, people who live in anarchy in the world and, you know, just are going to be rebellious and not follow any law? No, what he means by lawlessness is the Old Testament law. And for the sake of simplicity, we'll just say the Ten Commandments. We can take the Ten Commandments and reduce it down to, here is the law of God, and anybody who sins is violating the law of God. That is what sin is. It is the violation of God's law. And that's why in verse 4 he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, What do we know? How do we know what sin is? Is it a shifting reality from generation to generation? You know, well, you know, it was a sin then, but it's not really today. Our culture would like us to believe that. But what is sin? Sin is a violation of God's law. It's that simple. So we have 10 commandments that he says live by these, and 
you, you know, you, you won't be in sin. And then he starts us off with number one. What is the first commandment, the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Anybody in here nailed that one yet? He starts us off with saying, see, you're not righteous. Everything that follows is a result, basically, of failing to follow that. Everything. Second one, you shall worship no graven image. Well, if we don't, have a, if we don't worship the God in our life, what are we going to worship? We're going to worship a creation of our own mind. Whether it's an image, whether it's an idea, whether it's anything, we will worship something lower than God that is a creation of our own mind. That's the second commandment. And it just continues from there. It just continues down the hill. I mean, we get into stuff like do not murder. Do not murder. Well, that's a high bar, isn't it? That's way up there. Hey, y'all shouldn't kill each other. You see, sin is something that lives inside of us. And sin is us rebelling against the standard that God has set for us. And God wanted to show us just how sinful we really are. And so he gave us the law, which is good. So that sin within us would rise up against it and we would see that we are lost. It's that simple. The power of sin is the law. Now, does that mean the law is bad? No, the law is absolutely good. Listen to this. In Romans 7, 7 through 13, Paul says, What shall we say? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Or I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, let me prove how the mind works on this. Our mind, our flesh, will rebel against any standard set before it. Even if just in thought, we will push back against it every time. Okay? And you know how I know that? Nobody in here, I do not think of an elephant. Whatever you do, do not think of an elephant. It's trunk, Dumbo flying. How many of you are thinking of an elephant right now? You see, you can't help it. And I, you see, that's not sin. I doesn't make you sin, but I raised a standard up, however arbitrary and dumb it is. In your mind, sin within you already is like, cool, let's do it. So now think of what sin does when we get a real commandment, like remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Like do not covet. See, suddenly, what does Paul say? He says, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Like once I knew the standard of holiness, man, I rebelled against it with everything I had. And even if it's just in mind, that is enough. When we desire and want to go against God's will, that is sin living within us. We may not have followed through and actually sinned yet. The sin of coveting, though, that is the sin of the heart. But it doesn't matter. It reveals that sin lives inside of us. And so he says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. 
So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. You see, God had to show just how bad our sin problem was and is. And so what did he do? He gave us the law that reveals holy truth, holy goodness. It reveals holiness in itself. Here is the standard. Here is is the highest or ideal that you can strive towards. And if you don't meet it, it's sin. And sin's like, cool, gotcha. You know why? Because sin lives in the human heart. It is not an external force being applied to us, forcing us to do something. It is something that is literally a part of us. And when it encounters a standard, that inside of us rises up, it says, springs to life, and we die. And John understands this. That's why he says sin is lawlessness. Everyone who practices sin, every time we sin, we are rebelling against God. And we know it's sin because we have a commandment against it. Whatever it is, whether it's do not cover it, whether it's do not commit adultery, and then Jesus says, hey, if you look with lust, that's adultery. That's the same thing. It's a sin of the heart. He, he, all of it is covered right there in those ten. Hey, don't, don't be materialistic. Well, that's coveting. Hey, don't be rebellious against your parents. You know, it says honor your father and mother. Honor them. And yet the scripture tells us in the last days, children will be rebellious. Because sin runs rampant in the human heart. And every one of us has to own that. And when I say own it, we can't make excuses. We have to. This is what it means when we confess to God and say, I am a sinner. We have to say sin is attached to my identity. I have become less than what I should be. I am living in existence below what you called me and created me to be because I have rebelled against you. And nobody made me do it. I did it on my own. I made these choices. And that's why Paul goes on in Romans 7 then later and he says, that's why I don't even understand what I do. He can recognize with his mind that the commandments are good and yet he can't do it. And he says, I want to do it, but I don't. And I don't want to do this stuff, but that's what I do. And he finishes that discussion with, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? When he says this body of death, he's saying, I am wretched. I got nothing. I cannot overcome this. I am a lawbreaker, plain and simple, and I can't change it. No amount of therapy, no amount of group work, no amount of small group is going to undo that. You have to put your trust in Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit break that within you. That is the only way to freedom. And so John is not being legalistic right here. What he's doing is showing us that there is always, has been and always will be a standard that God wants us to live to. A standard of righteousness. 
Now, we can't get there on our own. We can't do it on our own. We have to have Jesus Christ. We have to follow the Spirit. We have to do it in faith. There's a whole process to it that's different than legalistic righteousness based on my efforts. But God's standard never changed in this. It's just how we get there. His methods changed. Not that his methods, really, but how, what it looks like to us. In the Old Testament, it was, hey, keep the law. And every time you sin, go sacrifice an animal. You realize every time we sin, we would never get anything done. And there would be no animals left on the earth. Because every time you do it and you walk off and you, you, know, you have a wrong thought or you trip and say something you mean, you turn around and go back. You see, none of those actually took care of the sin problem. It was just a constant reminder of, hey, you're sinful. You're sinful. Remember your sin? Yeah, you still have it. Still there. You're sinful. And then you had the the temple veil of like, oh, and yeah, by the way, God's in there and you're out here and you can't go in there. So it was nothing but this big constant reminder that we're separated from God. And what's separated? Sin. That's all it is. And then Jesus comes and what happens? He pays the price for our sin. God establishes a new covenant. The temple veil is ripped in two because now the dwelling of God is with man in the Holy Spirit living within us. Everything changed. But you know what didn't change? God's standards. God never changed in this. So he still wants us to love him. He still says, don't put anything before me. It still applies. We become a Christian, we don't get to make an idol suddenly. We become a Christian, we still should honor him with a Sabbath rest. God didn't change that. It's just we understand that that our actions don't make us holy now. It's his actions on our behalf. But now that he has saved us, we should seek to please him. And walk by faith in his ways, trusting he knows what he's doing and his ways are good and they lead to life. And so we can study the law of God. It says the law is good so long as it's used lawfully. What is the lawful use of God's word? To reveal his holiness, to understand his holiness. And when we read the law and we realize, I can't do this, we realize, praise God, Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled on my behalf. God, thank you. Thank you that I don't have to do this. Thank you that you have saved me. God, how can I please you with my life now? You see, John is showing us that there is, in fact, a standard to which we can look to know what is right and wrong in this world. It is not up to us. There is a standard. And that standard still, if we look at the Ten Commandments, if we all just lived by the Ten Commandments, what would our world look like? It would be amazing, wouldn't it? We would love each other. Our families would be close. Murder rate would be zero. It would be an amazing world. And so he's showing us that there is this standard, and we can see what pleases God, what is sin, uh, what is it to live, what is it to die. We can understand the nature of sin now by looking at the law. And every time we understand the nature of sin better, we're going to appreciate the cross even more. Because we will understand the power that he overcame in living a sinless life. And the righteousness that he has given to us because of his sinless life. 
it will also make us more aware of what sin actually is. When he says it's lawlessness, we start to realize the law encompassed every part of life. Did you know there is no innocent sin? That little white lie is still a lie. God, now we, we like to rank sin. And the reason we like to rank sin is because we don't see the eternal consequences of sin. We don't see it, not yet. We will one day, and then we'll be like, ooh, okay, that was bad, I get it. We like to judge it by the consequences we see immediately, okay? So we see things like murder and and these other things as the really bad sins that should be avoided, but we don't see covetousness as as bad because that's just, you know, that's just me. I'm not hurting anybody else. Well, really? Eternally, we are. All sin is equal in God's eyes because they are all equally violating holy commandments. And it doesn't matter how much we see the effects in the physical world, in the eternal realm, in the spiritual world, it is all a violation of holiness which all deserves death. And so in our own lives, no sin is innocent, all sin leads to death, and therefore no sin can be ignored or embraced as normal. No sin. And listen, we all do this at different times. We all do it. We embrace it as normal. Our culture looks at it and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's just the way it is. And you know, I cringe at where are we blind? Where are we blind to what culture has told us is okay and we've accepted it that a hundred years from now, Christians are going to look back at us and go, what were they thinking? How could they read the word of God and miss that? Because we can do it today, right? We can look back and say, you know, a hundred years ago, people were extremely racist and they claimed to be Christians and they were Christians and they loved God and yet they still hated people of color. And we're like, why? Why? I don't get it. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. And it's clear as day to us now. And I'm like, where are we doing the same thing? God, where are we blind and marginalized and accepting and saying, oh, you know, it's not that big a deal. And God's like, it's a very big deal. It's against my will. It is against my law. It is sin. And you need to see it as such. Because all sin is lawlessness. It is all a rebellion against the holiness of God. And so what we have to do in this then is ask, what's in your heart? What's in my heart? What's in our hearts? What is in your heart? Because John tells us the truth here and he kind of boils it down. And it's a larger section, but it's something we have to understand. In verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. The foundation of our faith, amen. And he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, when he says keeps on sinning, he is not saying that we are going to ever live a sinless life in this lifetime. What he is saying is that they don't do it as a matter of life and practice and accept it as normal. 
that they don't just continue living in it as though nothing ever happened in their life, as though they never received grace, as though Jesus didn't die on the cross, as though they weren't born again, that they just go along with the flow of the culture and and say, oh, yeah, no, it's fine. Everybody's doing it. He says that won't happen. Nobody who has been born again can just flippantly sin and continue to sin without being convicted. And he says, if you can, you don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. And so, he says, verse 7, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteousness. Why? Because our righteousness is based in his righteousness, in who he is. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Notice he said cannot. Now, I want to ask for a show of hands on this, so if it makes you uncomfortable, then you don't have to, but who in here knows what he means by that? Because you've experienced it. You wanted to live that life in sin. You, you knew it was wrong, but you're like, you know, I'm just going to go ahead. I'm just going to, I'm going to walk this path. I'm going to try to walk the, the tightrope. And, and, and God eventually is like, no, you're not. You're not doing that. And then they, you, know, you kind of keep stepping back. And finally, God is like, I said, stop. And let me tell you, friends, when God puts that finger in your face, you, you understand it. You see, because God isn't going to allow his children to just live rebellious lives. And if we insist, he may just take us home. He's like, I'm done with you then. You can just come home. You don't lose your salvation, but you can lose your life. Because God's like, I'm not doing it. Because John says here he cannot keep sinning because God's seed lives within him. The Holy Spirit lives within you, and you will be convicted of it eventually. Now listen, our God is gracious, he is forgiving, he is loving, he is patient beyond measure. So people may be in here like, well, God hasn't done that to me yet. Say, thank you. Thank you, God. And turn away from whatever it is, because if you don't, that will happen eventually. He will be putting his finger in your face. But God also knows us. And he knows our heart. And sometimes when we believe something needs to happen a certain way to change us, God's like, oh, that's not how it's going to happen at all. To, to get you to where you think you need to be, it's going to take some time. And this road is going to be very different than what you think it's going to be. And so, yes, I show grace and I will tolerate this sin while I work on your heart in other places. Because you don't understand yourself and I know your heart and, and I know you desperately think this needs to change, but that's just a symptom of something deeper that I'm working on. And so sometimes this change, this, this turning away from sin takes longer than we want. Sometimes we pray and we're like, God, fix this. And he's like, oh, I am, but in, in about 10 years we'll be there. But he doesn't tell us 10 years. He just says, trust me, my grace is sufficient for you. And we don't get it and we're like, and, and we get frustrated. But when we are walking with Christ... Here is a truth that I want you to all grab hold of. 
consistency, motivation, and results will ultimately come into alignment in your life for the things of God. It doesn't happen overnight. It might, it might not, actually. I'll put it that way. But ultimately, in the life of every Christian who is walking with God or trying the best to walk with God, I mean, we're not perfect, but we're doing it. We're, we're, we're spending time in the Word. We're trying to worship Him. We're, we're trying to do what's right. We're walking. Ultimately, consistency, motivation, and results will come into alignment. You will see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You will learn what it is to walk with Him by faith and not by sight. But man, these things don't happen overnight. And you may have seasons of consistency and then you're inconsistent. And you're like, what's happening? But your motivation's changed and you're seeing life differently. It's, it is such a growing process and pruning process that sometimes we just don't understand what's happening. But we've got to trust that God knows what he's doing. Because for some, the results are fast. For some, results happen over time, even years. But in the end, they confess Jesus and turn away from sin and towards righteousness. And their fruit of their lives prove it to be true. So I want to give you an example. There's the fast track. The Apostle Paul went from being a murdering, self-righteous, judgmental, horrible person to seeing the light on the road of Damascus, three days of blindness, and boom, I'm preaching the gospel and my life is different. Three days. That was fast. And you know what? He meant it. He was a different man. He was born again, and he was there, and he just grabbed it, and he ran, and God worked a miracle in his life. And now he's preaching the gospel, and even people are like, weren't you the one like last week that was arresting people and killing them? He's like, yeah, it was. Let me tell you why I'm not anymore. Fast track. It happens. Some of you in here, that may be you. That may have been your life. You're like, yep, I was going this way. God showed up. Boom, I was different. And that was it. Everything changed. And I say everything. I dropped addictions. I dropped this. I dropped, it just all changed. And God just put me on the road. And there I went. Hey, praise God. Then there's the slow track. Y'all remember Nicodemus in the Gospel of John? He came to Jesus in John chapter 3. It says he came at night, which in the Gospel of John means he came for nefarious reasons. He did not have a good reason for showing up. Everything in the Gospel of John that happens at night is like deeds of darkness. And so it says he came to Jesus at night, and Jesus is like, hey, you need to be born again. And, you know, he's trying to butter him up. He's like, hey, you know, we know you're from God. Nobody can do what you're doing if God isn't with him. And he's like, yeah, you no one sees the Father unless he's born again. Nicodemus is like, excuse me? How can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time in the mother's womb? He's like, you really don't understand this? You're a teacher of Israel and you don't get this? Wind comes and it goes and, and he explains it. And he says, you know, unless the son of man is lifted up, uh, as Moses lifted up the serpent, and this has to happen and you've got to be born again. He explains it to him. And it says Nicodemus basically leaves confused. He's like, I have no idea what just happened. I came for whatever reason. He left with all this information not understanding <laughs> What's going on? So then you fast forward a year and a half, halfway through Jesus' ministry. Nicodemus is on the council of the Sanhedrin. He's a well-thought-of guy. And they're wanting to attack Jesus. And Nicodemus is like, I, I don't think we're getting this right, but I don't know. And you can tell he's confused. He's conflicted between the truth and the world. And then even the world starts like, oh, are you one of his disciples now? And he's like, shut up. you know. And they're like, no. And he just doesn't know where he's at. 
And then you get to the end of the Gospel of John at the crucifixion. And Jesus is lifted up on the cross and it's like three years later, Nicodemus sees that and he remembers, if I am lifted up, as Moses lifted up the snake, and I will draw him into myself. And he sees Jesus lifted up on the cross and he's like, I get it. I get it. And he publicly aligns himself with Jesus in Jesus' burial. At the moment when it looks like he's lost, when even other disciples are running for their lives and they're like, I'm out, I don't know what's going on, Nicodemus is the one who gives all of the myrrh and and, and all of the burial materials, a whole bunch of the, the spices and everything they used. He's the one that donated it. It took him time. It took him three years of actually hearing Jesus teach, talking to Jesus face to face. And it took him three years before he's like, okay, you know what? I think there's enough here to believe. So if it's taking you some time to figure things out in life with God, you're in good company. Because you know what? The same miracle that happened in Paul's life fast happened in Nicodemus's life slow. Same miracle, rebirth. It's okay. In time, those walking with Jesus will publicly align with Jesus and their actions will prove it. And that's what he means by this when he says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. We will ultimately turn to him and begin to resemble him in this world. And obedience will become a part of our lives. So we can't be fault finders with each other. And it's like, you got to obey. You better start obeying right now. You know what? If you're trying, then let's walk together. And you help me and I'll help you. And let's sharpen each other. And let's encourage each other in the faith to be as close to God as we can. And when we fall, we do what Scripture says. And it says, you who are spiritual should gently restore such a one. Like, let's, let's circle the wagons around those that fall and say, you know what? We let you down too. We didn't know you were struggling. Let us gather around and help you and pray for you and and lift you back up into fellowship so that you can be restored to that right place with God. Because ultimately, obedience is what matters. You see, what this is going to do is lead to what I say righteousness and love in our lives. I mean that, righteousness and love. Righteousness, right doing, right living. Honoring the law of God in its moral and spiritual imperatives. No, we don't have to make sacrifices anymore because Jesus paid the price and the final sacrifice was made. So we don't have to do that. We are freed from the law in that the law is fulfilled. We don't have to keep the dietary stuff and, and, and the, the festivals and all of this stuff anymore because all of that was a precursor and a foreshadow to point us to Christ. But the moral aspects of the law are still binding. And not only are they binding, Jesus raised them even higher. Do you realize that? The moral level that was set in the Old Testament, Jesus came in and he didn't just double down on it. He raised it up. He says, hey, the law allows this, but I'm telling you it's this. The law says don't commit murder, but I'm telling you, don't harbor hatred in your heart because that's just, that's worse. That's just as bad. You're still a murderer. 
You have to forgive. You see, Jesus was all about the heart and and who we are. And, And so this is what he says in verse 10. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Isn't it crazy how you just reduce that down to two things? He's like, here's what you need to look for. If you want to know if a person's truly born again, watch their lives and see, do they consistently try to walk with God and honor his ways and do the right thing? And do they love other people? That's it. And and I love this. What he says says, by this, it is evident. When something's evident, what does that mean? It means it's obvious. It's on display. It's right there. It's right there to be seen. You know why? Because love is obvious. It's obvious. You can't hide. If you hate someone or you love them, you know the difference. It just takes a little time. I mean, that's it. Just give it a little time. You'll figure it out. It'll be obvious. If a person is honest and they're trying to do what's right in this world and honor God with their stuff, that's going to be obvious in time. It gets very obvious around April 15th every year. It gets real obvious. You see, John doesn't want this to be confusing. They've already been deceived and these people heard them and these false teachers came in and some were led astray and then they left because they finally drew a line and were like, we're not believe in that and they left and john is writing it's like okay let's clear this up one it's got to be about jesus and jesus only and two you got to do what's right and you got to be loving these false teachers didn't either they were leading people away from jesus they didn't love other people and they weren't doing what was right and so that's why john's like it should have been evident now he's not condemning them know this he just says by this it's evident it's out there it's obvious to everybody And so with this, one of the problems we have with what is evident and open is we have mistakenly accepted the premise that we are not to judge at all, right? Do not judge lest you be judged. I think that is the most quoted verse by Christians living in sin or non-Christians in this world. And you know what? It's misunderstood, That's right. Don't judge unless you want to be judged. That's cool. But what does that verse actually say? Because it's not telling us not to make a judgment. So listen, in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Hmm. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This kind of sounds like a reap what you sow kind of thing happening here, not a don't ever judge, saying what kind of judgment are you giving? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So this is a prohibition of self-righteous judgment. Self-righteous judgment is the judgment that says I'm better than you, I'm achieved more, I'm better, you're worse, and you should listen to me because I know what's best for you kind of judgment. Now, we all hate that judgment, right? None of us wants that. But he says, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? Verse 5, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The end result here is judge yourself first, 
deal with your own sin first so that when you recognize that sin in another person, you know the process how to actually help them and not just judge them. You know the process of leading them out of it, and you can do it with compassion. You can do it with grace. You can do it as God did it with you. You can help with others in that same fashion. Notice he says, so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, I'm going to tell you what. If I got something in my eye and somebody's helping me get it out, they better be able to see clearly. That's an important fact right there. I need you to really know what you're doing. And that's the care we have to give to each other. He's not saying don't judge. He's saying if you're mean and you're, you're mean-spirited and, and fault-finding, guess what's coming back to you? Mean-spirited fault-finding. That's what you're going to find in life. But if you genuinely make a judgment that like, brother, sister, I love you and I really, I see this and I want to help you because I've been through it and I know the pain that you are feeling and I want to be there for you. Whole different story, isn't it? Yet you made a judgment. You made a judgment that something was sin, that something was out of place, and it needed to change. We are called to make those kind of judgments. Okay, Jesus himself said it again in John 7, 24. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We are called to make right judgments judgments in this world which requires a knowledge of the word of God which requires the spirit of God and wisdom given by God and a love of neighbor that is genuine so we can love them through the process and if we love our neighbor as ourselves then we never give that condemning kind of judgment where we stand over them because we're looking at it going man I got problems too But the problem I see you dealing with right now is one that I can actually help. So I want to help you find God in this so that you can let go of it. And if we did that with each other consistently, my goodness, we would see this world turned upside down for Christ. Because people want healing. They need it. And so what does it look like? What does it look like when we practice this? Jesus told us in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Again, that's a judgment. You have judged that there was a sin against you. And he says, go tell him alone. Don't announce it on Facebook. Don't tweet it out. It says you go one-on-one and you tell him alone. Now, again, this is a brother. This is a fellow Christian. Don't expect the world to, like, respect this. If they're an unbeliever, we're going to get to that. Don't expect it. But he says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along that with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now this is important. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know, that's not talking about worship. What's it talking about? Love and restoration between brothers and sisters in conflict. 
Jesus has promised that if we will follow his prescribed method of resolving conflict and working through things, he will be there in the midst of us to make it work. And so we adopt a redemptive, loving posture and seek to maintain fellowship. And if a person is a true believer, they will eventually yield to the truth, which is what we've been saying. Eventually, consistency, motivation, and results come into alignment. Eventually, things happen. And so if a person is genuinely following God and they've wronged you and you go to them like, I don't, I, I disagree. And it's a genuine sin. When two or three other people come, they're like, man, you really did mess up. This was wrong. And I've got scripture to back me up and we're not coming at you. We just want to fix this. We want to restore this relationship. And they're like, I just, I, I, and then it goes to the church. If they can withstand That and then actually bringing it before an entire body of believers and they still can withstand it, he's saying they're not saved because the Holy Spirit will be working on them like crazy during that process. And that's where he says, treat them like a Gentile or tax collector. Assume they're now lost, which changes our relationship, right? Doesn't mean I hate them. Doesn't mean I'm kicking them out of my life. It's like, oh, you're not saved. We need to take care of that. You need Jesus. And our posture, again, is loving, but we change approaches because we assume they don't have the Holy Spirit. That's what this looks like in practice, to love our brother, to do what is right. We put ourselves out there and we do it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for today. And God, I thank you for every person in here. And God, I pray that you would just deeply within our hearts and our soul, God, impress upon us what it means to do the right thing, what it means to follow in obedience so that you are glorified, God, that that, that we would do so trusting that your ways work and that they bring life and peace and joy and love. That, God, in order to do so, we must deny ourselves. And, God, I pray Lord, that you grant us the wisdom and insight to to understand that at a deep personal level, God, so that we can honor you. Father, this is about your life through us now. We walk not by sight, but by faith. Lord, help our lives lead us to that place where our obedience isn't just about our own peace, but it's about loving our neighbor that people would see and know your grace because we've obeyed. That people would know that they are loved because we obeyed. That God, those that watch us in life and see us would see over time a consistency and a motivation that line up with you. that we can be the people that can be trusted to do the right thing. God, it's in Jesus' holy name we pray this together. Amen.